Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche Podcast. I am Doug Krause coming to you from the heart of the San Juans, which right here, right now, are higher than 100 hippies and drier than Scandy humor. This is season two, episode two of Slide, the Avalanche Podcast. We are rolling into December, so there's tons of season left, a lifetime, if you know where to look. And I have a new advisory. Consume Slide, the Avalanche podcast, at your own risk. If you decline exposing yourself to my reckoning, you will avoid its consequences. And that's kind of the main subject of our show today. Risk. With some other salty bits. Moving. State of the Pack. I may have mentioned how devilishly challenging it is to derive a broad seasonal picture of the snowpack based on the various zonal forecast bulletins. Only a matter of time before I get sick of trying again. Part of the problem is that few forecast centers note the range and height of the snowpack in their forecast region. Seems like pertinent information, particularly in December. In Canada, The height of the snowpack is often part of the standard observational set a forecast center provides. Those crazy guys. Anyway, there are two North American avalanche fatalities I'm aware of so far this winter, and that number will likely rise. If you will tolerate a brief conjecture, the first seemed to be a tragic combination of perhaps a hazard that was not recognized, exposure that was not calibrated to the hazard, and a lack of measures to reduce vulnerability. Details are more scarce in the second, but the presumption of my speculation suggests that the spatial scope of the hazard and the terrain-specific consequences of an avalanche were not realized, or maybe not given the weight they deserved. I may be wrong on all counts, but debriefing is not about pinpointing error. Debriefing is a mechanism for learning and improvement, Tragedy always begs explanation, which is never easy. In each instance, a loved one exposed himself or herself to hazard and to consequences. This is the nature of risk. As I was saying, Colorado and Utah are high and dry, which sucks for us. The Tetons in southwest Montana have more of a pack, with hazard and quality of skiing varying radically with the weather and whether or not you're hucking shots at alpine slabs. Near as I can tell, they're looking at a 75 to 125 cm base in favored locales near and above timberline. The Columbia Mountains in Canada appear to be doing better because they are in Canada, and the skiing is usually better there. We're looking at a 1-2 meter base near and above treeline, probably a lot colder, And that was a little while ago, so they may have had more snow since then. Alaska never ceases to confuse me. Things were grim everywhere, except at Hatcher. Then it got grim at Hatcher. Then it snowed a bunch. Then it snowed more. I looked at the Turnigan weather stations last week, and they said two to four meters of base. Really? Well, one site jumped from 15 to 196 centimeters of base in an hour. So I'll file that as awesome or anomalous. But I've seen the rest of the internet, man. It looks like they got a solid coat at Turnigan, albeit rather disgruntled at the moment. Very Alaskan. Snow in Valdez was a bit crap 
as they say in the Antipodes, then they got whomped with a legit pounding. If those terms are unfamiliar to you, check the swag, 4th edition. Coast Mountains, B.C., maybe 150 centimeters base near and above treeline, maybe more. Again, probably better because Canada. Pacific Northwest has some solid stats in the 75 to 150 cm range with much higher amounts around Mount Baker, I believe. Though sometimes great snow comes with not great weather. Or neither, in the case of Tahoe, near as I can tell. Mammoth seems to be doing better, but only way up high above the suck zone. I guess the Alps are off to a pretty sweet start this year, but it's so hard for me to understand them. Finger spitzing fool? Japan? Yep, they're just fine. I don't want to talk about it. And the East Coast has excellent holiday cheese and cider products, and Michaela Schifrin crushing it at Killington. Booyah! That's what I got. Of course, additional storm systems have already hit here and there by the time you hear this. So, whatever. Moving! I got a whiff of gear talk for you. Get some radios for Christmas. Learn how to use them. Then don't. By don't, I mean use them as a tool, not as a crutch or as a sop for chronically poor planning and communication. A silent radio should be a comfort, and a busy radio is a distraction. Books or gear? I'm currently reading the Harvard Business Review's 10 essay compilation on emotional intelligence, a 14-volume, 4-million-word fantasy epic that is the bane of my existence, and 2016's compendium of best science in nature writing. I recommend the former or the latter, not the middle. No micro rant here. Sorry, I'm sure I'll get fired up about something sooner or later. We had a request to compare and contrast the three-circle search method with the micro-strip method. These are both alternative search strategies for solving multiple burial problems. Are you with me, Spike? I'll keep it simple. Yeah, right. I'll keep it brief. The three-circle method is easy to learn and remember. Microstrips require practice with the technique, like snowboarding versus skiing. It's been argued that the three-circle is more useful in relatively flat, wide-open spaces, and the microstrip technique excels in close proximity, more challenging, or confined spaces. I know a little fellow that might argue that microstrips optimize the speed-precision ratio for the highest probability of detection. And the three-circle is just a German retort to a Swiss solution. My advice? I teach the microstrips. I recommend you know one or the other and practice digging. Stick a probe in that two-meter snowbank the plows put on the corner and see how fast you and a partner can get through one and a half meters of caterpillar concrete. Mm Hmm? Clear. I'm going to do a little refresher segment and we'll see how it goes. Snip a lock from a previous episode, go over it again, see if we can be more brief, yet more detailed at the same time. This time. Maybe next time too, if we like it. Dark magic, you say? Abunai. 
Storm slab. Storm slab is an avalanche problem type. We use it to communicate the nature of a particular kind of avalanche problem. It packages a bunch of beta into a lovely little two-word nugget. Specifically, we know that storm slabs form a new snow and may fracture within that new snow or at the interface with the old surface. The instability typically recedes over hours or days, and weakness may be identified by testing the new snow or observing recent activity. Slabs can be as hard as one finger or as soft as a fairy's breath. Great name for a run. Two great names for runs. One finger and fairy's breath. A fairy finger storm slab may be feature specific. <laughs> a fairy finger storm slab may be feature specific or propagate across an entire slope or path. The consequences of storm slab are determined by slab mass, velocity, and terrain. Thick slabs and lengthy fracture make avalanches large relative to me, but whiff and fairy's breath might be okay, unless it pushes you into a fairy choke, or a fairy trap, or the fairy cliffs of doom. Consequences. Storm slabs are often associated with natural activity, and they can be reactive to very touchy with ski triggers. Clear! Moving. In the last episode of Slide, the Avalanche podcast, we stuck our head in the oven of the conceptual model of avalanche hazard. Specifically, we discussed the components of an avalanche problem and how to use them to assess your special, personal avalanche problems. One begins by identifying the avalanche problem type whether it be storm slab or wind slab or persistent slab or the half dozen other problem flavors that could serve as the means of your undoing. Avalanche problem type definitions contain a shipload of information on their formation parameters and the implications of the problem. That's a shipload of information, which is equal to approximately 431,000 kilograms depending on the density of the avalanche problem type. Once you think you know what avalanche problem type you're dealing with, we describe it based on location and distribution. For instance, a cornice problem on specific terrain of northeast aspect near and above treeline. Now we can target uncertainty related to our avalanche problem by trying to gauge sensitivity. What will it take to make it go? Is it a touchy fresh wind slab problem or a stubborn persistent slab problem? Avalanche bulletins combine sensitivity with distribution to create the likelihood rating you see, a la you are very likely to trigger wind slabs today in recently wind loaded areas. The size of potential avalanching is the final component of our tidy little avalanche problem package. Then you gotta mix it up with the line you wanna ski and the evidence uncertainty balance that describes the validity of your beliefs. Easy peasy, ne? Of course, we haven't talked about terrain yet. I hope you noticed that. Enter risk. 
risk is the effect of uncertainty on objectives. Avalanche risk is the probability or chance of harm to a specific element at risk, determined by the element's exposure and vulnerability to an avalanche hazard. In advanced ski patroller speak, risk is the chance of an avalanche inflicting harm on an object of value. For instance, the probability of my friend Bobby the Hucker getting smoked by a storm slab and battered into a horrible mess on this fine bluebird powder day. Assessing and monitoring the risk we ride is very important. We have two new words that should have jumped up and poked you in the eye. Exposure and vulnerability. According to Mr. Statham, exposure and vulnerability determine the chance of harm. Our exposure and vulnerability to an avalanche problem affects the likelihood that yon slab shall do us harm. Relevant information. Relevance provides decision advantage. If I am not exposed to a hazard, it can't harm me. If I am invulnerable in the face of ferris slab, same, same, no harm. So we need definitions, right? Because words matter. Intuitively, many of us have notions of exposure and vulnerability, but they can be a little slippery when you try to pin them down in so many words. I'm winging it, so feel free to call me out, but I think of exposure as subjecting myself to potential consequences. If I ski a line where there is a wind slab problem, I am exposing myself to that problem. I am exposed, whether I know it or not. Dropping trow for the wind slab. You are the master of your exposure in space and time, and frequently may reduce it at will. Sometimes I wear suspenders. My dad sometimes wears suspenders and a belt. Vulnerability describes susceptibility to harm. If I am captured by that wind slab, will I escape with a slap on the wrist or will I suffer critical injury? We can also take measures to reduce our vulnerability. Beacons, airbags, and helmets, for instance, don't protect you from avalanches, but they may improve your odds of surviving one. Experience, training, and practice can reduce our vulnerability by priming us to act and react in timely and appropriate ways that reduce the odds of injury. Slippery slope, that. A notion easily abused. There's another important word we haven't dwelt on yet that's wrapped up in all of this. Any guesses? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with schmonsequences. Bobby L., son of Steve, is purported to have written, Everybody, soon or late, sits down to a banquet of consequences. He certainly did author a pithy sailor's take on such a dilemma. Jim, lad, there be consequences, and then there be consequences. Devil take them all, says I, and pass aft the rum. 
This suggests that not all consequences are equal, and it's how we manage them that is relevant. Are you a devil take em and pass the rum, lass? Or a nope, 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 the hell out of there kind of fellow? Managing exposure and vulnerability allow us to mitigate the potential consequences of an action. You are the master of your exposure. Unless, of course, you're not paying attention or get sucker punched by the unknown. This just in. Failure to anticipate and manage consequences is the number one killer of dipshits in America. But we are all prone to that weakness. I've done it many times. Smart people that are trying really hard make mistakes or get bit by black swans too. But as a group, the dipshits really highlight the problem. Even when the consequences are plain, a failure to respect them, or the idea that it won't happen to me, will often bring the hammer down on Billy Joe or Baba Sue. Reducing or eliminating exposure is our primary tool for managing consequences. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now, because we were talking about risk, big picture. Keep your eye on the ball, son. Eye ball. What we need is a repeatable process for managing risk. Well, here's a half-baked cake for you. Use it at your own risk. Part one, identify the hazards and what will be exposed to them. We spent most of the last episode reviewing how to identify and describe avalanche hazard. You and yours will be exposed to it, if you choose. What could go wrong? That's part one. Part two, what castigations may the avalanche visit upon me? That means, how bad could it be? Is this a wrath of God situation or a hangnail event? This is consequence analysis. Go back to your avalanche problems for the day and apply them to the terrain. What size avalanche might occur here? How will the terrain affect the consequences of that avalanche? What level of exposure to that threat will we tolerate? Center punch? Or tiptoe around the edges? Get in, get out? Or telegag about the infield. Are we sure? How sure? Why? Question belief before you drop trow. How bad could it be? That's part two. Part three. Well, now what, Cletus? Assess your options. If you don't have options, you might be screwed. Can we reduce the hazard? Can we reduce our exposure to the hazard? Can we reduce our uncertainty? Or nope the heck out of there? Or are we good to give her? Now what? That's part three. Better talk it out. Good time to re-examine the likelihood of your avalanche problem. And apply it to your personal problem. There's the rub. That's tenderfoot risk management process. What could go wrong? How bad could it be? And... So, what are you going to do now? Remember what I said last episode about guessing? 
not a reliable risk management process. Clear. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Moving. So we've got a little store time for you. There's this place down south I used to ski a lot that has excellent terrain and sometimes good snow. It's run by a shadowy cabal of goat herders, middle-aged twits, and an Asian billionaire. And that works just about as well as you might suspect. Finding good pow on legit terrain often entails a sojourn to the Alpine, as it did on this fine day. I think we were the first ones up, Cerro Mama Mios. Maybe not, but we were definitely the first three stacked up on the lines beneath our feet. World-class lines. Each has a cup of a start zone 20 to 30 meters wide that steepens and chokes over the first third, then plunges through the constriction to broad lower angle fans on the run out. Good stuff. This is way before I heard anyone talk about avalanche problem types, but my main concern was wind slab. Specifically, fresh, touchy wind slab in specific terrain features with common characteristics, like the pockets above the chokes below us. It hadn't snowed in a day or two, so storm slab was not on my mind. But that wind slab... Man, it just creeps in on the breeze high above where we sleep. Pretty big deal going for a ride up here, so I figure watching my ass real close is a good call. I hug the subridge on the right that defines the edge of the path and make rhythmic, short radius, alert, glorious, deep powder turns to about 10 meters above the choke. I pull up on the right and pause and stare at it to gauge its metal and see nothing. But I'm not willing to risk the consequences of getting knocked off my feet and shot through that pipe below me. So I slash out and back in a quick and risky ski cut. At the top, I try to minimize my exposure in space. My cut tries to minimize my exposure in time, in a space that maxes it. I scratched back onto a bit of rocky rib that defined the extent of my protection and watched a small wind slab crack and spider drive into the choke to churn onto the apron below with a respectable powder cloud and fan of debris. Solid D2. D2 plus? I don't know. Enough to bury, injure, or kill a person. That's for sure. A hop turned through the choke, which sucked, and onto the apron below, which was quite good, adjacent to the debris, and saw my buddy Rocco peeling out onto the apron from the next couloir over, with his beacon out, racing to mitigate the consequences of my action. But we were fine. Identifying the problem was easy, I thought. Identifying the consequences was equally easy and resulted in a tolerance level of not allowed to get caught in any kind of avalanche here. Bad. Very bad to be caught here. So, exposure is my option. 
can I reduce my exposure to a level that fits zero tolerance for being captured? I don't actually recall that inner dialogue, though I do acknowledge my presence. In any event, I clearly went with, sure, no problem. Ah, to survive youth again. So I did my Zen turns down the far right side of the path, believing that I would feel a wind slab and could quickly eject to the subridge in the event of fracture. And I came to a point where it was no longer possible to reduce exposure in space. And my uncertainty regarding the wind slab remained high enough. Climbing out was an option, but I had no evidence of instability to support a retreat. Not much of a hook to hang my zero-tolerance cape on. Consequences are still in the nope, nope, nope category. So I took a swipe at it as fast as I could. Confident in the security of my start and end point. Minimizing the time in between. And it worked. On that day, in that place, for me. Easy to see how it could have gone differently. If I have to choose between luck and skill, I'll take both. Twice, please. Every time. Clear! Well, right on. Thanks for playing, everybody. If you enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing on iTunes or Android. If you did not enjoy Slide, the Avalanche podcast... Perhaps the 1957 Jackie Paris LP, Skylark, would be more to your liking. This podcast is supported by the Silverton Avalanche School and DPS Skis, and by Jeff, Doug, Jan, Christian, Onuki-san, Tyler, Bill, Michael, George, John, Caleb, Ian, Ben, Sarah, John, Axel, Yari, Roger, James, DJ, Norris, bringing the bass, Steve, the crew at Powder Addiction Snowcats, Graham, Peter Paul, not Mary, maybe I offended her, Chris K, Michael, Drew, Edward, Trent, and Adam. Amazing response to the first episode of the season. And I know the thousands that listen want to thank those 29 people for keeping Slide on the air, and I do too. If you want to support Avalanche Education, please consider a donation via PayPal or Patreon. You can find the links at avalanchepodcast.com. And a $5 a month commitment on Patreon gets you a transcript of every new episode. To everyone that has provided feedback and encouragement, thank you. Pray for snow.